Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Lucy Inman, and presiding with me today are, to my right, Judge Toby Hampson, and to my left, Judge April Wood. We have one case on the calendar for oral argument today, and that's Court of Appeals docket number 21-427, Four Roses, LLC, versus First Protective Insurance Company. And, Counsel, are you ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. Very well. And as you're coming to the podium, Counsel, um, do you wish to reserve any time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. With the Court's permission, I'd like to reserve seven minutes. Seven minutes. Somebody who's better at me than technology will make sure that that happens. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, my name is Marshall Galinsky, here on behalf of the appellant, Four Roses, LLC. Uh, this is an insurance coverage case. It involves uh, business interruption losses caused by COVID-19. Uh, and so I thought I'd begin with a, a brief introduction regarding the reason why businesses buy property and business interruption insurance, because I think that's important. Uh, businesses don't buy property and business interruption insurance to make sure that their property looks or sparkles in a particular way. They do it because they use that property to drive revenues for their business. It's the operation of the business through the use of the property that is essential, and that's the essential thing that's being insured. When something happens to the insured property so that it can't be used to drive the revenues, it doesn't matter if that thing that happens is a hurricane that rips the roof off of a building or an invisible odor or fume or toxic gas or bacteria or a virus. The impact to the business and the business owner is the same. That property no longer can be used for its intended business purpose. That's why businesses buy business interruption insurance, to protect their ability to use their property to run their businesses. Now, there's 60 years of precedent from across the country that stands for the proposition that when something happens to business property that does not structurally damage the property, but nevertheless renders it unfit for use, that that constitutes physical loss or damage that's covered under a business interruption policy. For 60 years... And just, are any of those cases decided by the North Carolina appellate courts? No, there's one. There's the Harry's Cadillac case, Your Honor, which touched on this issue. Um, and I can talk about that for a moment, if you'd like. You don't, I don't mean you, we can get to it. But we'll get, yes, certainly. I just want to make sure I wasn't missing any other decisions. No. Okay. Um, but it, it's useful in identifying that this has been an area of contention between policyholders and insurance companies for, for decades upon decades. The vast majority of those cases consider things like, like I said, toxic fumes, gases, things that don't structurally break anything into pieces but nevertheless make it impossible or unsafe to use the premises. And those cases for years have come down saying that things like ammonia, methamphetamine odors, uh, E. coli bacteria, listeria bacteria, cat urine odor, in a very famous case from the New Hampshire Supreme Court, all of those things, when they impact the property, cause physical loss or damage and trigger the coverage that's promised under standard property and business up interruption insurance policies. So, so being cognizant the, uh, of the posture of, of, of this case, right, it was, it was decided on 12b-6, 
uh, on the face of the face of the complaint, do the allegations state a cause of action? Um, can, can you explain to me where in the complaint it's alleged that there was a quote direct physical damage uh, to the property here? Yeah, in paragraph four and paragraph five of the complaint, they focus on. I think, admittedly, the complaint is uh, sparse in its allegations. Um, but paragraph four of the complaint, it says, COVID-19 and the associated restrictions caused injury to and loss of use of the insured property. So it says, you know, the allegation, I think it's fairly clear, COVID-19 caused injury to the property. Right? That's the allegation. And of course, it must be accepted as true. Um, and that satisfies an essential element of the causes of action and the triggers of coverage that are at issue here. Um, so thinking about these cases then, um, for 60 years, insurance companies litigated these cases, largely lost them, and were very well aware that both policyholders and courts reasonably understood the term physical loss or damage to encompass loss events and situations just like the one we have here, bacteria, listeria, virus, whatever that no structural alteration to property was required in order to trigger coverage. And interestingly, if insurance companies disagreed with that interpretation, and if they wanted to make it clear in the contracts that they write and that they sell, they could change the policy language. If structural damage were to be a requirement for coverage, the insurance industry has had 60 years to say so in the contracts that they sell. They haven't. They have never changed that language. The promise continued to be made, we will cover physical loss or damage, with a very well-known understanding that that encompasses losses like the ones we have here. Now, in 2005, of course, there was a SARS epidemic in Asia. That provoked the insurance industry to change its policy language. But they didn't change physical loss or damage. That continued to be the basis for the promise that they made to their policyholders. Instead, they added an exclusion onto their policies for losses caused directly or indirectly or in any way relating to a virus or bacteria. And that was a widespread endorsement that was added to what we now know as 83% of the insurance, property insurance policies sold in the United States prior to the pandemic. 83% of policies had a virus exclusion added to them, but not for Four Roses, and not, by the way, for North State Delhi, which I know is a, another case that's before this court. So ar articulate for me, then, how you, know, you, you seem to be drawing a, a distinction here between perhaps different causes uh, of the physical loss, from COVID-19 itself, the virus itself, as opposed to the, the, gan uh, the government-mandated closure of the island. Um, articulate for me how a direct physical loss was caused by COVID-19 specifically. Sure. So when property is impacted by COVID, by the virus, by COVID-19 itself, um, that property is transformed. It goes from property, something that's safe and useful. Well, I think my question is more just, just from a sheer factual standpoint, how do you, how do you connect COVID-19 directly? What, you know, What's the connection between COVID-19 and, and the particular property involved in this case? What, why, why did COVID-19, I guess, cause a direct loss? Because you can't rent out your property to tenants anymore. That this, this was a problem. But that was because of the government well, mandate. The allegation of the complaint, if you recall, is that it's both, right? It says COVID-19 
and the associated orders and restrictions imposed by the government caused physical law injury, caused injury to and loss of use of the property. So it's both of those things. And both of those things are covered separately under the terms of this insurance policy. There's two extensions of coverage that are relevant here. Um, and those are, this is the coverage D section of the policy. Coverage D2 uh, provides insurance under the heading fair rental value. And coverage D3 provides coverage under a heading civil authority. Okay? So in order to have coverage for fair rental value under that provision, and these are additional promises that are made by the insurance company in this contract, you need to have two things, basically. A loss covered under Section 1, right? That basically invokes physical loss or damage, right? And that's where the impact of COVID to property comes in. If you, have, if you have property that's affected by COVID, it's transformed into something that's unsafe, unusable, possibly even deadly. But, well, but, but, but I'm sorry. No. Um, j just going back, um, you know, possibly even deadly, it's dangerous property. Um, and, and you note direct physical loss again. Um, there has, I didn't see any allegations in the complaint that as a result of COVID, this property was contaminated, dangerous, possibly even deadly. Um, so that's my first question. And then my second question is, you talk about the civil authority. Um, Four Roses could have rented this property to somebody else in Dare County, right? I mean, somebody else within the community could have rented the property? I suppose that's possible, but practically speaking, if people live already in the Outer Banks, they likely aren't the people who rent houses there. Um, I would agree with Your Honor that that would be a technical possibility, but as a practical matter, that's not really how it would work. Okay. Um, so, Mr. Kalisky, let me just ask a quick question, because uh, based on what uh, Judge Inman said, it seems as though the, the crux of your argument is this property was inaccessible to people outside of Dare County. So how can you distinguish this case with the case you mentioned, the Harris Cadillac case, which just said, that inability to access the property in and of itself is not a direct physical damage. Right. So first and foremost, I think the key thing to note about Harry's Cadillac case is that it was decided on the evidence presented on summary judgment. It was not a motion to dismiss case. Here we have allegations in the complaint. And, and to answer your question, Judge Inman, yeah, going back to paragraph four of the complaint, it does allege that COVID caused injury to the property. So it's in the complaint. I would concede that the complaint could be more detailed. And should that be the court's concern, I think the solution to that concern would be uh, an opportunity to replead with more specificity. But I think for present purposes, those allegations are in the complaint. They must be accepted as true. And that wasn't, that's not the standard on which Harry's Cadillac was decided. In Harry's Cadillac, there was evidentiary proof put forward as to what caused the business interruption losses there. You'll recall that there was snow on the roof that damaged the roof, and the question was, if that's what caused the business interruption losses, then I think arguably, I think there would have been coverage there. But the court held that it was based on the evidence. Well, but, but, it, but it was based on, on, on the allegations and evidence that the, that the business interruption was caused by a lack of access to the building or to the, to the dealership in that case. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, I think part of the problem, to follow up on Judge Wood's question of where, where we sit now, is that now we have that law out there, where in Harry's we didn't. And to the extent 
the construction of a, a, an insurance policy term is a matter of law, we have to look to that precedent. And so I guess the question is, how, do, how would you have us distinguish Harry's on, uh, even on a factual standpoint, not just the procedural posture in which it arose? Right. So first and foremost, I think the procedural posture just, just certainly distinguishes it. Um, but secondarily, it's also true that the language at issue in that case is different from the language at issue in this case, right? Um, at issue in that case, according to the court, was they, they integrated the concept concepts involved in the period of restoration language there to conclude that, that restricted access wasn't enough. Um, here, those same restrictive terms in the period of recovery language are not found, nor are they found in the, in the uh, North State Delhi case, by the way. The North State Delhi case has uh, a more expansive language allowing for 12 months for a period of recovery. Here, the period of recovery lasts for as long as the order of civil authority is imposed and up to two months, I'm sorry, up to two weeks. And also, there'd be coverage for the period of time during which the premises was unfit to live in. Um, so I think Harry's Cadillac can be distinguished on that basis as well. You know, I wouldn't concede that, that it's correct to say that the period of recovery acts on a condition of coverage. I don't think it is. I think it's a measurement device that you look to the requirements for physical loss or damage that renders the property unfit to live in. That triggers the coverage right there. That's all you need to look at to understand if coverage is triggered. Then you look to period of recovery provisions to say, how long is the policyholder entitled to be paid for the interruption? So I think they're separate things. But I think either of those things, independent of one another, the procedural posture or the policy language distinguish Harry's Cadillac from these cases. So getting back to the, the use of the virus exclusion in policies and the 83% of policies that were sold prior to the pandemic having that exclusion, uh, that's a critical difference here. I think it's a critical difference and it's one that the court should consider when it considers the cases that are cited by the insurance company here. You're, you've read in the briefs um, and you will hear an argument, I'm sure, today about a large number of COVID cases that have been decided in other jurisdictions and in the federal courts here that held that insurance companies are correct on this issue and that the policyholders are wrong. It's really important to understand the factual underpinnings of those cases and how they came to be. After the pandemic struck, there were a lot of lawyers around the country that signed up a lot of clients and filed suit in court, seeking coverage for business interruption losses from COVID. Naturally, because 83% of the policies sold have exclusions for virus, the vast majority of those lawsuits involved cases with virus exclusions. And as a result, the lawyers did not come to court and make allegations like I've, like I've referenced here today and that are in the complaint, that the virus causes physical loss or physical damage to property. The lawyers articulating on behalf of those clients with virus exclusions avoided tangling with the issue of the virus and the damage and havoc that it wreaks. Instead, they made more creative arguments about, well, it was the pandemic that caused the losses, not the virus, right? So judges reviewed, so insurance companies sat back and said, wow, we've been sued in 100 or two or 500 cases. And they picked the cases that they wanted to file motions to dismiss in. And judges, understandably or not, uh, reviewed those cases with virus exclusions and said, there's an exclusion for virus here. 
the complaint doesn't allege that the virus has caused any physical loss or damage. And in order to get coverage, you need to have allegations of physical loss or damage. And so they dismissed those cases time and time again. Then the insurance companies took those cases and hold them up for the 17 percent of us who don't have a virus exclusion, and they say, look, we, we win. We win these cases all the time. Well, that's, that, those cases don't control. The fact that there are other policyholders who bought narrower policies and who made narrower allegations in their complaint as a result, the fact that they have their cases dismissed, can't truncate the coverage that the 17 percent of us are entitled to. We bought policies with broader coverage. We have alleged that the virus causes physical loss or damage, and our cases need to be determined on that basis. We don't lose coverage because other policyholders bought less and made narrower arguments. And that brings us back to the procedural posture of this case and the, and the standard of review that this Court has in front of it. The question here on a motion to dismiss is whether or not the allegations in the complaint assert a cause of action, accepting those allegations is true. So the exercise that's before this court is to take the insurance policy, look at the provisions under which we're seeking coverage. Again, that would be coverage D2 and coverage D3, and then look at the complaint and say, have they alleged a, a plausible cause of action here? And by the way, the, the notice pleading standard in North Carolina doesn't even require plausibility. I, I think argue that can clearly both are met. Um, but if you take them one by one, those allegations are there, and this case is entitled to be heard on the merits with the evidence, not dismissed based on a motion to dismiss. So what's required to, to plead a cause of action under the fair rental value provision, paragraph D2? Need to, need to allege that there was direct physical loss to property, Paragraph 4 of the complaint alleges COVID caused injury to and loss of use of the insured property. The allegation is there. It must be accepted as true. You also need to show that part of the resident premises rented to others was not fit to live in. Again, the complaint in paragraph 5 alleges that the county prohibited the use of the property. And when you look at the order that the county issued that prohibited the use of the property, it acknowledges the dangerous nature of COVID-19 and the fact that it had been present in communities across North Carolina. And it made it impossible. It prohibited people coming out to the Outer Banks to live in that property. And that, that's an interesting point you hit on there because um, — <clears throat> Here, I mean, I understand the allegation is that the county prohibited access to the to insured property. The the declaration, of course, is is more broad than that. It's it's outside access to the island, but or to the county. Um, and that strikes me as a little different than than, for instance, in the other case where it wasn't where the where it's not a government mandating that you cannot rent this property which is, I think, perhaps a little less — is at least somewhat different to the scenario in the other case where you have, um, you know, government prohibits uh, people from entering restaurants in particular. Mm -hmm. So, again, articulate for me how you fit that under, in particular, direct physical loss rather than perhaps indirect physical loss. Right. Well, think about it this way. What we're talking about here is a very far-reaching catastrophe. Um, the notion that 
the worse the catastrophe becomes and the more widespread that catastrophe becomes, the less, uh, the harder it becomes to obtain your insurance coverage is illogical, right? So obviously, if there were an order that said, don't go into this particular house, right, I would hope that we wouldn't be having this argument here, but we probably, we might still be having that argument because we'd be hearing that the virus doesn't cause physical loss or damage, right? But the idea that the impact of the pandemic and of the virus was broader than just this house shouldn't mean that you don't get coverage for this house. It means that anyone who had rental, rental property, could have been a neighbor, it could have been up island, anyone who had property that they couldn't use because it became dangerous by, from the virus, who bought a policy that promised coverage that still includes coverage for virus, that all of those properties would be entitled to coverage. And it's, it's not sensible to think that, especially in the emergent times of the pandemic, that county or state governments would be issuing narrowly focused orders saying, don't go into this property or this building or what have you. The government did what it felt like it had to do at the time to keep people safe, given the danger to property and people, and it was sweeping. Uh, that's the simple fact of it. But that sweet, the sweeping nature of those restrictions and the sweeping ubiquitous presence of the virus affected this property like it did others. So I think, I think that's a fair read of the landscape, and I think it's a fair way of reading the contracts and the promises that are made to the policyholders who buy those contracts. Just because a really bad thing happened in my town doesn't mean I get less coverage than if a less bad thing happened just to me. I think both of those instances trigger coverage and, and warrant um, this case moving forward and certainly not being dismissed. I'll just ask you a hypothetical that is not the record in this case, but just to sort of explore the parameters of your argument. Let's say that there was um, seawater contamination, constant rip currents that caused the government to close the beach, to close the ocean and the, the beaches. It said no one can go in the ocean. That was the restriction. That would, that would mean that anybody could come and rent this property. They might not want to because they were going to go to the beach. Mm -hmm. You're not arguing that that would be covered, are you? Different policies address that differently. I don't think that would be covered here under under D2. I think it says there needs to be damage to the insured premises. There are other policies that do cover situations like that, but it depends on the nature of the property that's been damaged and whether it is property of the type insured under a particular insurance policy. So for, for Four Roses, under coverage D2, no. You need to trigger D2, you need to have physical loss to the insured premises. For D3, the civil authority provision, you need to have damage to property away from the insured premises that results in an order of civil authority. So under D3... If there's a meth lab down the street... If it, were, it has to be damaged to neighboring property, right. right? So in that case, I think you know one could legitimately argue that if there was contamination in the ocean, damage to the ocean that caused civil authority, um, that you could trigger coverage here. But the problem is, is it has to, for, for that instance, is it has to, I think it says prohibit, prohibit the use of the property, right? 
I think that's a tenuous argument. So again, I think you have to take this, as is always the case, in policy by policy. And this is the point I was making about the distinction between the 14 percent versus the 83 percent. Every policy has to be looked at individually and considered alongside the facts that are at issue in the case. Uh, I see I'm moving into the time I've reserved for rebuttal. Unless your honor has any of your honors have more questions, I'll continue at that time. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Jeff Kuykendall, and along with my partner, J.D. Keister, we're here on behalf of the appellee, um, First Protective Insurance Company, also known as Frontline. And we'd ask that the court affirm the decision of the trial court and dismiss the complaint. Um, I heard a lot about what insurance companies have done with 83% of them, what plaintiff's lawyers did, how insurance companies selected cases. I heard very little about this case and North Carolina law. And I think the reason for that is this case and North Carolina law are pretty clear that the decision of the trial court should be affirmed. First, Fort Rose has purchased a homeowner's policy for a property in Kill Devil Hills. The property was used as a rental property. And in March 2020, Dare County issued an order that prevented non-residents from coming into the county. Paragraph 5 of the complaint pretty clearly says, on or about March 17, 2020, Dare County prohibited use of the insured property by physically closing roads that provide access to the insured property by persons that had contracted with Four Roses to rent the property. This caused Four Roses to suffer financial loss covered by the policy. The complaint alleges that it's the inability to access the property, which is what is the basis for the complaint. Mr. Kirkendall, let me just ask you a quick question. You termed this as a homeowner's policy, and your uh, co-counsel uh, or your counsel uh, termed it as a business interruption insurance policy. So would you elaborate on that what, from your perspective, what the difference in those policies is? Well, the, the difference is, is a homeowner's policy, the, the purpose of a homeowner's policy is to protect typically when an individual lives in a home, uses the home for their own personal use as opposed to conducting business out of it, not suggesting necessarily, and that's not part of this appeal, that renting it out is somehow improper. But it, it, this was not designed, as was alluded to, to protect a business from any and all sh interruptions or shutdowns. This was a homeowner's policy for someone who purchased a lovely home on the beach that wanted, or near the beach that wanted to, to use it as a vacation home and potentially rent it out. So I think that that distinction is important only to the extent that, that the, the court believes that the purpose for purchasing the insurance policy is important. Um, very clearly, the frontline policy. Well, I guess the I guess the the, the, the point is you're, you're not contending that that this this policy somehow just broadly does not cover uh, fair rental value. I, that is not the argument in this case, Your Honor. Right. Um, the, the point is that the policy very clearly requires direct physical loss. And that phrase has to mean something. 
In the brief, appellants dissected the dictionary and came up with all these. It could mean these seven words, and we're going to pick this one word, and we're going to pick this other word. And a much more simple exercise would have been to to read Harry's Cadillac and discuss that case. I heard Harry's Cadillac is not applicable because it was decided at the summary judgment phase. In Harry's Cadillac, there was a snowstorm that physically damaged the roof. So it makes sense that they would have to explore that aspect. I also heard it had to do with the period of res- restoration. However, Harry's Cadillac, the provision at issue, very clearly also uses the phrase that the suspension must be caused by direct physical loss of or damage to the property. And our very similar direct physical loss to the property is at issue here. And Harry's Cadillac, this court abundantly and clearly held that the inability to access a property is not a direct physical loss. That is the exact situation that appellants pled that, hey, Derrick County closed the roads, and, Your Honor, Judge Inman, you got into the, the question about residents of Derrick County could still go there, so, but we can even ignore that for the moment, and let's even pretend that it was all, all residents have to stay out. It's still an inability to access the property. It is not a direct physical loss. And added to that is the fact that it wasn't an inability to access this property at all. It was an inability to access this property by certain groups of people, meaning non-Dare County residents. Four Roses, the owners, could have gone to this property. There was nothing that prevented them from using their own property, uh, assuming they are considered residents of Dare County. Well, the, and the certain people who couldn't, couldn't access it, as I read the complaint, were the people from outside Dare County who had planned Correct. to be there. So it's not like speculative, right? They were planning to be there. Um, um, but your, make sure I'm understanding your argument. The fact that there were people who were planning to be there, um, that there was revenue that was going to be coming in um, that was lost, your argument is that doesn't amount to direct physical loss and it's not covered. That's, that's right, Your Honor. The, the fact that they were planning to come in is not direct, direct physical loss. The property wasn't lost to all people. The property could have been used by residents of Derrick County. The property was simply lost to non-residents, and yes, they were planning rental income. We're not challenging that at this point, and nor could we at this procedural stage. However, it does point to the fact that there was no direct physical loss of this property because it could be used by some smaller segment of the population, meaning Dare County residents. Um, so I think this court is guided by and directed by Harry's Cadillac, which answers the very question about inability to access it. Even if for some reason that is not the issue or that is somehow distinguishable, in the last two years, at least five federal courts in North Carolina interpreting North Carolina law have held that COVID-19, the very same virus, is not covered under a direct physical loss type policy. And we've, we, I believe we cited to Golden Corral and Summit Hospital, both in, both in the Eastern District, and we recently filed an additional authority memorandum for death and taxes, uh, another Eastern Eastern District, um, FS Food Group in the Western District, and Palm and Pine Ventures also in the Eastern District. All five of those cases 
have things in common. One, they are not interpreting on a virus exclusion. They are not based on some argument related to a virus exclusion. Second, their policies are similar to Frontline's in that they require direct physical loss or direct physical damage or direct physical loss and damage. Third, the judges in those cases, like in Harry's Cadillac, found the phrase to be unambiguous. Fourth, they cited and discussed Harry's Cadillac and said, this is the controlling case. This is the case we must look to to decide under North Carolina law whether COVID-19 has caused a direct physical loss. And they rejected, uniformly rejected, the arguments of insureds, like the arguments today by Four Roses, that there should be coverage, that there was direct physical loss. Um, North State Delhi has been referenced a number of times, more in the context of the fact that this court will be ruling on that as well. North State Delhi was, as far as the published opinion, is a trial court level, so it is certainly not binding. It also suffers from an um, error in the sense that Harry's Cadillac is not mentioned at all in the North State Delhi. There is no effort to distinguish Harry's Cadillac, explain it away, or explain why it is somehow not applicable. So I would contend that North State Delhi is the product of judicial error as opposed to some um, precedent that needs to be followed. As far as coverage D is concerned, uh, D3, the civil authority, was mentioned. That requires both direct damage to neighboring property, and again, we have no allegation or evidence of direct damage to any neighboring property caused by a peril insured against. So we, go we sort of go back to the direct physical loss. The peril insured against is frontline insures against direct physical loss to the property. So if civil authority requires direct damage to neighboring premises by a peril insured against, it is requiring direct damage to a neighboring premises by direct physical loss. So it is still under Well, where does it, where does it, where does it, where does it, okay, as a peril insured against, that's, that's, that's right. your point. And, and, and section one of the frontline policy is entitled section one hyphen perils insured against. And then it talks about coverage A, and it says, we insure, read it, make sure I get it exactly right, we insure against direct physical loss to property described in coverages A and B. Do you concede that there's no definition within the policy itself as to what direct physical loss is? Yes, Your Honor. There is, there is no definition of what direct physical loss is. And under North Carolina construction rules, when it is not defined in the policy, we use the ordinary meaning. They then, they jump to, well, let's open the dictionary and let's look at it. What I would say is the ordinary meaning is exactly what Harry's Cadillac analyzed what direct physical loss means, which is simply that it requires some sort of tangible um, loss or damage. So there already is, certainly in North Carolina, case law describing what that means, um, which would be significant evidence of what the ordinary meaning of that is. Staying under that civil authority prohibits use, where it talks about as a result of direct damage to neighboring premises, is, is looking sort of looking at the policy as a whole, is there, is there daylight between the term direct damage and direct physical loss? Particularly um, as you, like, look at this, would it be, you know, are you saying this is as a result of direct physical loss to neighboring premises by direct physical loss? I mean, 
is, what, is there daylight? Basically? Sure. What I would argue, Your Honor, is I don't believe that there is daylight, but I don't know that we even need to get there because of what I, I had just said is that it's um, it was a result of direct damage to neighboring premises by a peril insured against. So it incorporates the direct physical loss into that provision with that phrase, by a peril insured against. So one, I don't think that there is um, daylight. We've cited a number of out-of-state um, cases, a Fifth Circuit, District of South Carolina, I think a District of Louisiana case, that talk about the need for a nexus or causal link between the civil authority and some sort of physical damage. And also in our memorandum of additional authorities, the um, Palm and Pine Ventures LLC case versus Lloyd's of, Under of London also talks about, and that's a, applying North Carolina law, also talks about a causal link or nexus between physical damage and the civil authority uh, preventing access. Obviously think of, you know, there's an explosion or a meth lab that explodes in a neighborhood. There's, you know, hanging houses over the roads or over somebody else's house and it's it hasn't actually physically damaged your house but your neighbor's house might fall on you so the civil authority says this road shut down that's the kind of scenario it it protects against not a we're shutting down this this road because we don't want people coming in that might contain that might have a virus so um so one, so to answer your, your question, Judge Hampson, I, I think direct damage does require a nexus to physical damage, but even if the court disagreed with me and felt like I was wrong, it incorporates that peril insured against, which requires direct physical loss anyway. So we're back to um, the definition from Harry's Cadillac. Um, so in the, yes. Sorry. Go ahead. To ask you just sort of an extension of, of of um, where this where this argument leads to, um, if if a person or a business entity were thinking, oh, I'll I'll buy a bunch of houses on the coast, turn them into Airbnbs, and I'll make money hand over fist, and then this happens. Um, if this court agrees with you. Um, what's going to happen to the rental real estate market? Are um, those investments just going to go away? Because I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to invest in property that I couldn't get insured against this kind of loss. Well, well Your Honor, I, I think I... It's just more of a market analysis sure. question. I would respectfully disagree with the premise of your question, which is that somehow there's not an insurance product available for those people. There are ingress, egress provisions that um, insurance policies offer where you can find something that says, hey, I'm going to purchase something that, pro that protects me if I can't ingress or egress from the subject property. And that was the... Um, that was discussed in one of appellant's cases. It was um, Fountain Power Boat um, in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Um, the reason it's not applicable to our case is because we don't have it. We're not talking about ingress, egress. Right, right. But it, it's illustrative of the fact that there are such policies or such riders or amendments out there that you could say, if you're really worried that a civil authority is going to shut down access to your rental property, you can negotiate and get and seek out, find, get 
um, ingress, egress policies um, that would um, deal with those kind of things. So, I mean, at the end of the day, what this simply is, is one, I think we have binding North Carolina Court of Appeals decision that talks about this very issue, which is the inability to access the property. Two, um, the complaint very clearly pleads that is the, the instruction of the Dare County authorities, which prevented the use of this property. Three, I would contend it didn't actually prevent the use of this property, but simply prevented the use of this property by non-residents, which means the property was perfectly usable. It's just that the government had decided it could only be used by a very small segment, um, which they wouldn't have done if it was actually suffered a physical direct, a, excuse me, direct physical loss because it would have been dangerous for anyone, whether they were a Dare County resident or not. So, um, and then finally, the issue with COVID-19 has been, is widespread, has been addressed all over the country, including by f a number of federal courts in North Carolina. I'm sure there are many other cases. The court itself has another case on its calendar about this issue. They're all over, and courts in federal courts outside of North Carolina, but particularly drawing attention to the ones in North Carolina, have uniformly found that COVID-19 does not cause a direct physical loss under North Carolina law. And um, while certainly not binding on this court, is certainly persuasive that that is the uniform finding, and they are not based on some virus exclusion or some other exclusion that's not applicable here. So unless the court has any other questions. Well, I, 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 I do, because I want to kind of get to the, the, the second part yes. of, of the argument. We focused on, you know, direct physical loss. Is there, <clears throat> or at least allegations that would get you past 12B6 in terms of whether there's coverage? You know, what we haven't really talked about is, are, are the exclusions. You know, were we to get, you know, were we, you know, assuming there are allegations of direct physical loss in the complaint? Okay. Uh, you know, talking about how the exclusions could apply and, you know, and, what I'm seeing is that for, for every potential coverage, there appears to be some form uh, of exclusion. And so, number one, just stepping back and looking at this policy as a whole, um, this may be an unfair question, and if it is, you can tell me, but you know, are, are, are you comfortable articulating a scenario in which comf uh, coverage would be provided under the policy? What is this policy intended to provide coverage for? Like, can you give me a scenario? Sure. For and, that? And, and I learned a long time ago, judges don't ask unfair questions. So I, I will, of course, answer your question. Um, as I said earlier, uh, depending on which part you're talking about, uh, simply coverage A, the direct physical loss, a hurricane hits a, a beach house and blows it to smithereens, a fire breaks out. Obviously, that's. But there are exclusions for that. There's exclusions for weather. Sure. Yes, there are exclusions for weather, Your Honor, but There's I can exclusions for, you know, damage caused by the weight of water and wind and that kind of thing. I, I can assure you Frontline has, with Hurricane Florence that came, by, came through a number of years ago, Frontline has dealt with and paid a number of claims dealing with hurricane damage caused um, throughout uh, various counties, including Dare County, I'm sure, um, dealing with that. So I, I, it's a, I, I can't recite all the exclusions off the top of my head, but if a fire breaks out in a house, that is covered by a homeowner's policy. Typically, um, flooding covered by a leak in the in the property is covered by those kind. Of, I mean, your what I would contend is your normal everyday experiences that homeowners have that may damage their property. Many of them are covered because they're anticipated because they're accidental. Certainly, if you do it to yourself, it's not covered. It's excluded. Um, 
If you're talking about the loss of use and we get into the civil authority, I had mentioned the example earlier where a road or a neighborhood or a, a cul-de-sac is shut down because a house blew up and there, uh, there's a gas main you know, gushing and they're worried about ignitions, so everyone needs to stay out because it's dangerous. There's been damage to a neighboring pre uh, property and it may cause um, da da direct physical damage to your property. But yeah, there's an exclusion for government action or indeed any action or determination by anybody. There's also exclusions for government seizures of property or government takings of property. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's it's so I'm I'm struggling to try and figure out where you know how these exclusions could not be interpreted. And that's not to I'm not questioning the good faith of of your client and how they administer individual claims, but in terms of us trying to 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 read a policy as a matter of law. Yeah. You know, how do we how do we deal with that? Well, I think the way we deal with that, your honor, is the the policy begins with we insure against direct physical loss to the property. Uh, describing coverage A and B, period. It's pretty broad. It's pretty encompassing. It only requires basically direct physical loss to the property. So it requires those elements. And then it says except for and then lists the dozen or so exclusions. So and, and the way our, our case law has developed over time is when it's an exclusion, we, the insurance company, have the burden of showing why it's applicable in that case. And it's narrowly tailored, the, the benefit of the doubt is given to the insured, things like that. So I think the structure of this state and the case law in this state has made it so the, these exclusions are developed to, by the insurance company to try and define the times where they're not going to cover direct physical loss. Because that's the idea is your house was physically damaged and we should pay to repair it. That's why you buy insurance. It is not, hey, your house can't be used because there's a virus going around the country. And even though it hasn't impacted your, your house, the, the governments, state, federal, have decided we're going to sort of put, put a pause on everything and shut everything down. And that leads to cancellation of rentals. Um, the exclusion you're referencing, which we do argue in our brief, that if for some reason the court does get to a direct physical loss somehow, that it does exclude acts or decisions, including the failure to act or decide, of any person, group, organization, or governmental body. So that, by its very nature, acts or decisions of a governmental body would exclude the, the inability to use the property, the Four Roses property, based on the Dare County order, because it is a, clearly a governmental body that made an act or a decision that then led to, led to the inability to use it. Because the reason those kind of things are in there, at least part of the reason those, those kind of exclusions are in there, is that the insurance company is at the whim of the governmental body just as, it, as the insured is. We have no control over it. So to say, you know, we're not going to cover it if that's between the government and its citizens, and we're not going to cover it when, that, when they make a decision that then causes direct physical loss. Because that again, exclusion is a lot more broad than that, isn't it? It says uh, acts or decisions of any person, group, organization, or governmental body. So it seems incredibly broad. Uh, but it has to be read in the context of we insure against direct physical loss to property 
unless that direct physical loss of the property is caused by acts or decisions by person, group, organization, governmental body. Um, so I think you have to read it in context. I, I'm not disagreeing with you that there is some breadth to that, to that exclusion, but you have to read it in that context. Now, again, just to be very clear, I don't think you ever get to that exclusion because we don't have a direct physical loss here, but um, that's the that's the exclusion that's in the policy, and that's what we would contend um, applies. All right. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. A couple of things. Um, First, Harry's, let's go back to Harry's catalog. The key question before this court is whether the allegations made here, in this case, in this complaint, trigger the coverage that's promised under D2 and D3. Right? I, I talked about D2 before. The question Harry's catalog was whether the evidence in that case met the requirements of coverage under that policy. All of these insurance coverage cases are fact-specific. They, they focus and turn on the promises that are made in the insurance contract at issue in each case. And so I talked before about the allegations that are required to trigger the fair rental value coverage, physical damage, unfit to live in. We've got those here. Civil authority coverage, right, requires proof that there was direct damage. And you're right, Judge Hampson, the language does probably have some daylight direct damage to neighboring properties, right? That allegation is made here. There's, there's a citation to the Dare County order that acknowledges the widespread nature of the risk associated with COVID. Uh, it extends across the entire county. Um, I, I would submit that that meets the requirement there. If more specificity were needed, and I could see how you, your honors might be considering that, I think the solution to that is re, you know, see, allowing leave to replete with more specificity. Um, so that's requirement number one, number one. And number two is that it leads to an order of civil authority that prohibits the use of the property. And, we, and clearly there's an allegation of that, and clearly we have that here. Uh, this idea that other residents of Dare County could still use the property, as we discussed before, Judge Inman, I don't think that as a practical matter holds up here. I mean, there, the loss at issue here in the Four Roses case is actually quite narrowly circumscribed. There were a couple of people that were coming for a couple of weeks that resulted in losses of $12,000. Those people couldn't come. That's the loss that's at issue here. And the notion that there's some more limited use that was somehow could be shoehorned you know, around or within a very broad prohibition uh, the reality is, is that prohibition prohibited exactly how this business, how the property was used for rentals, right? Um, it's, it's almost as if there were a restriction that said, I've got a barbecue restaurant, right? And there's a restriction that says only vegetarians can go out to restaurants. Well, vegetarians could come to my restaurant and they could eat the coleslaw and the collard greens. Um, but the reality is that restriction is going to crush my business. And the reason why businesses buy the business interruption insurance in the first place is to protect the, the core use of their business. When people weren't allowed to cross the bridge and go out to the Outer Banks, that was it. Um, and, to, and to 
narrowly try and interpret this otherwise, I think is subverting the core purpose of the insurance policy. Um, we'll just, I think Judge Wood mentioned this. Um, Appellee's counsel calls this a homeowner's policy, and you call it business interruption policy. It is a homeowner's policy. There's no mistake about that. But it was a homeowner's policy sold to someone who rents out their property on VRBO. And that policy specifically has a provision in it that we're focused on here. You know, it, it covers the ability to rent, to rent the property to others. Right? So, I mean, the promise made goes directly to it. It's not like it was concealed from them what the property was for. And they promised, they made that promise. They need to be held to it. Um, talking about the other cases, um, from the federal courts and from around the country, I think if we're looking at the federal court decisions from the middle and eastern districts of North Carolina, looking at the way Judge Eagles handled the cases that were before her in the middle district, I think is very informative. Um, there were two cases that she heard, um, the first of which she decided in November of 2020, that was a case that had a virus exclusion. She reviewed that claim and she said the virus exclusion precludes coverage, full stop. She didn't look at or talk about the physical loss or damage issue and she dismissed that case. The next year she heard the Novartis Health case. That was a case that did not have a virus exclusion. She looked at the allegations in that complaint and she said the allegations allege that there's physical loss or damage caused by the virus and I'm bound to accept those allegations as true and that's what I'm going to do. The rules require that of me. Um, and she did not dismiss that case. She specifically spoke about Harry's Cadillac in that case, and she said Harry's Cadillac was a motion for summary judgment, not a motion to dismiss. It's not a basis for me to dismiss a case at this early stage of the proceedings, and I'd submit that that's exactly what ought to happen here. Um, and to talk about the exclusions, just for a second, um, opposing counsel's discussion about that, about the acts or decision exclusion, that it it is in direct conflict with the promise that's made in the civil authority provision. If an act or decision of, a civ of the government bars coverage, then how, are you, how on earth are you promising coverage where there's an order of civil authority that prohibits the use of your property? Those two things cannot be reconciled whatsoever. I think the solution to the exclusions concept is hearing the evidence. I have no idea what that acts or decision <laughs> exclusion is supposed to do. It could be interpreted any which way till Sunday to exclude practically anything. The solution, of course, is to see what their documents say about what it means, to hear testimony from the witnesses about what it was intended to mean, and none of that can be done simply by throwing a case out based on a motion to dismiss. Again, similar to the Harry's Cadillac discussion, that's yet another reason why this case should be allowed to proceed and to be resolved on the merits, not based on a dismissal. Your Honor, one last thing. You asked, Judge Inman, you asked where does this lead to? It raises a question in my mind. This isn't a case that's just about the 17% of policyholders who suffered physical loss or damage from the coronavirus. It's also about anyone else that might have any other type of insurance claim absent structural damage in the future. A factory where there's carbon monoxide on the factory floor and that it can't be used. Do they not have coverage now also? Uh, uh, well, a factory that had carbon monoxide on the factory floor I mean, would seem to me to be different because, again, this doesn't involve a house where there was a meter that said there's COVID in this house. This was the whole area. But the, the argument that the insurance company is making is 
Physical loss or damage means structural damage. It means a tangible alteration to the property. If this court were to so hold, then what happens to these other citizens and businesses and policyholders all across North Carolina? They, they lose their coverage, and that's coverage that they've had for 60 years. Your time is up. Can you wrap up? Sure. Um, one very last thought, and I think it's an important thing just to mention very briefly. Um, because it sits, in my mind, just beneath the surface in these COVID business interruption cases. And that is, what happens to the insurance industry if courts rule that there's coverage for business inter interruption losses following COVID-19? I mean, COVID-19. Um, the answer to that question is, and, and you've heard, and if you read the amicus briefs that are filed in North State Delhi, you'll hear that the insurance industry is saying, no, no, this is going to put us under. The fact of the matter is, they've They've been saying that for years. They said that in response to the possibility of having to pay asbestos claims for every, you know, every business in the asbestos industry. They, weren't, they didn't go out of business. After CERCLA was passed in 1986, they said that about environmental coverage cases because every industrial uh, company across the country had pollution on their premises. They didn't go out of business from being forced to pay for that either, and they won't go out of business here. When you read the amicus brief filed in that case, you'll see they carefully use an ellipsis to say, and, I, and I, it concerns me that they're trying to mislead the court. When they, and this is the insurance industry's lobbyists, the NAIC, the, the AICPA. They say, "Is this your reading from the the other case that yes. not a separate oral argument?" I'm going to have to cut you off if you okay. could just wrap up and listen. So, fair enough. Um, the bottom line is the insurance companies have done extremely well during the pandemic. They have a record surplus of over a trillion dollars. They have booked reserves of over a billions of dollars to pay for these claims. And those, so those but that, that, no, that's, that, that's not in this record. That's not really the issue bef before us. That's not right now. And I, and I appreciate the, the policy argument, but I, 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 think, I think Judge Inman was, was uh, inviting you to wrap up. <laughs> Invitation accepted. Thank you. I truly appreciate Your Honor's time. Thank, Thank you, you Counsel. Much. The case is submitted and we'll be adjourned.